Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the Cattleman's Call podcast. Lane Nordland, happy to have you with us here as always as we continue to make our way through the spring of 2020 here once again. Been a lot of challenges for everyone out in the countryside uh, here this spring with COVID-19 and the impacts that it's had on all the cattlemen and women out there. And joining us on our show today is a person that many across the nation know, whether that is from the cattle aspect of things or from being down in the Missouri-Texas country, or maybe he might pop up at a superior livestock sale or rep your calves on the video auction. I'm talking about our good friend Clint Berry joining us here today. He's actually on the road, I believe, in Kansas. But, uh, Clint, how, how are things shaking out here today? Doing great, Lane. Thanks for letting me be here. Enjoy the chance to get to visit. Well, uh, as I mentioned, it, it's a, a busy time for cattlemen and women. It's a hard time right now for producers, but uh, all of us still have a job to do, and, and we're continuing to do that. And uh, what, 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 what are things like there in the Midwest? Uh, what, what's your bit, uh, week been like uh, on the road there uh, for Superior or whatever you're doing this week? <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of a mixed bag of stuff this week. Uh, you know, with the craziness we've seen in 2020 and the, the, the shutdowns and cancellations and postponements of COVID-19 has kind of threw a, a, you know, across the country on, on the whole population. Uh, a lot of things kind of went, I won't say idle, but slowed down. And then now as we're ramping back back up and on the superior side of things, as we're pressing into the summer video sale season, everybody wants you to be everywhere at the same time, which was something you kind of feared as, as you had a little free time in the spring. And that's what's happened. But uh, last week I was in Alabama videoing cattle. Uh, for the next auction, and then Thursday we were in Fort Worth having the first big summer sale. We sold about forty-five thousand on the Corn Belt Classic, we call it. And I ran to Nebraska and went to the feedlot and did a tour with some of the guys that I feed cattle with. Had a kind of had a, a informal business meeting there, and then now I'm headed back down to, to Fort Worth again. We got a sale on Thursday for our tall grass auction, just a little under ten thousand. So uh, the rest of the summer is kind of spent dividing time between chipping chipping fall born calves or, or what's left of the yearlings coming out and, and prepping and getting ready to, to sell the spring born calves that will ship in the fall throughout the summer uh, at, at our large sales and our auctions and then in between trying to visit potential new customers as well so it's uh it's the best time of the year for us because we get to spend most of our time with our our customers and we get a chance to market their year longs worth of effort and get around and see the country i uh I, I, one thing about it, weather-wise, I've heard a little bit of everything from everyone. I've still got some customers complaining about too much moisture, and I've got customers in the Panhandle and the Southern Plains that are drying out pretty good. It was uh, 90, 95 degrees in Nebraska this week, and the wind blew so hard you hard to keep your hat on. And it's been that way all the way home today, that's for sure. Yeah, up here in Montana, I was uh, mentioning to you, I, uh, my, my rain gauge broke. My my wife made me throw it away because it cracked, and I put a little bit of uh, Gorilla Glue in it. So you'd have to, you know, that swells up a little bit, so you have to take like a tenth off <laughs> of the rain amount. So she goes, we're getting rid of this. So I had a bucket out there, and I, I literally, right before I called you, I was out there looking into that uh, five-gallon bucket. And I would say conservatively, we got about an inch and a half of rain here the last few days in Bozeman. And I know uh, my dad's poisoned 
needs a little more moisture, but uh, gosh, it, it, it's been a it's been a good year so far up here in Montana. But moisture, for, especially for the farmers, they they need some moisture up here um, for for sure. Uh, we're we're not going to cuss it uh, up up here in Montana. But but Clint, you mentioned that feedlot tour. What what was kind of the uh, what what were folks talking about on that? What were you hearing from from uh, your customers and friends there just about weather, the cattle markets, everything? What what was the mood like? You know, optimistic in all reality. I mean, don't get me wrong. We've, we've got challenges on the on the feeding sector of things, you know, due to the, the restricted efficiencies in the plants over the last six, eight, ten months or ten weeks, you know, and, and that, that's been an issue, no, no doubt about it. Um, pin conditions in Nebraska were excellent, uh, as good as I've seen them in two years. But, uh, you know, we've got a lot of cattle that, They've got a lot of weight on them, and they're and they're putting more weight as they go. That's for sure, because you know most guys are still backed up. We're finally getting back to, to full efficiencies within the plants. You know the the numbers are there where we're basically back to to uh, I guess ninety five to one hundred percent efficiency. You know everything's coming along, and that's great. But you know we've got to work our way through those cattle. But overall, when you consider everything we've dealt with. When you consider that for a large portion of the of the spring we were we were only needing to kill three out of four cattle that we normally would because we didn't have the workforce in place in the plants, and we were only able to sell three out of four fat cattle worth of, of product going out the door. I mean, you know, we faced price challenges on the cattle supply, and the consumer was facing price challenges on the beef supply. So, all that being said, it's the market has held out better than, than what was anticipated. I mean, you know, if you've looked at the last three contracts on the live cattle and, you know, we've been, we've been trading cattle above the board basically for the whole spring and that, and that's been good. And that's, I guess that's where I would paint some of the optimism is, you know, if you look at the futures and they're 95 cents, anything you can get well and above that is, is a good shot at, you know, uh, putting a little extra money back in your pocket because it, it could sure be a lot worse under the conditions. And as we move into the summer and, and get into the hot time of the year, that's we're going to have some, some pressing issues like that. Hopefully we can keep that beef humming and keep those plants in full operation and work our way through that. But, you know, the cattle look great. Cattle look fed great. My, you know, my guys, uh, I've got a an LLC we formed with some, some independent seed stock producers and we, we buy some customers' calves back and and collect a lot of carcass data. We even do DNA work, and, and we return that information back to our bull customers to utilize it not only in their herd selections, you know, to make better genetic selections on the animals they're retaining and the bulls they're buying, but we also use that as marketing leverage, which sounds a little funny from a guy buying cattle, but I'd like to take the information we have, make the cattle better, and use it to help make the cattle bring more money than what I can afford to pay for it, which you know, sounds a little funny, but we wanted to create a system where everybody wins. And so, mm-hmm. if you look at cattle on feed, we got some that are going to go to harvest next uh, next week or early part of the week after that. So, we were able to see calves that had came in early on back in the fall, and now they're, they were able to see the cattle as they're getting ready to go out the door at 14, 14 and a half. Some of them were 1,500 and more, so yeah. it was nice to get a chance to do that. But overall, you know, this market's been pretty good, and last Thursday, the feeder calf market was strong, strong and steady, you know, basis between the cash and the and the, and the futures, somewhere around that $15 mark, 12 15 16 on some cattle. You could sure see some, some pressure on the calves that, that had some extra value options, you know, uh, 
genetics, stronger health, wean cattle, cattle with some value-added programs to give a buyer some flexibility when he gets ready to sell those or resell those cattle, you know, as fat cattle. Um, those cattle are going to compete a little harder. Uh, every every producer's got to decide on his own what direction he wants to go and, and, and what management techniques work for him to match those value programs. But, you know, put those cattle out there and shop them like that. This market's it's been pretty good. It really has. Well, I, looking at that, I, I'm actually looking at uh, that Corn Belt Classic Region 2 results. That that includes you know, my, yep. my region. It's most time what I'm, I'm interested here, you know, Montana, Wyoming, uh, a little bit further south from us. And, you know, you look at those five and a quarter to 530-pound steers, they were 143, 156, you know, 6 to 640s, 140 to 149. Yep. And, yeah, that, that's off of last year's averages when you compare them side by side. But all, all of my buddies that – or watching this sale, to, trying to determine what what their marketing of uh, their calves will be here as we move into the summer months. Uh, I know a lot of my buddies and my family were just like, "Woof, that, that that's a little relief, a little stress off." I mean, obviously we want the highest price out there that we can, but given the circumstances, you know, I you can't argue with those prices. And, and I I know folks that are calling the feeders internal optimists. Well, I'm glad they're internal optimists. Um, uh, my, my buddy uh, Bill Rischel says he's not tough enough to get into that business, nor am I. Uh, <laughs> but, I, I mean, uh, what is – when we're talking with these buyers and, and with these other feeders, what – I mean, what, what, what is really, how is their stress level right now? Obviously they got a lot on their plates, uh, having to keep uh, a hold of, of uh, some of these cattle that weren't able to get processed right away. And, and as they look at kind of refilling these, uh, uh, feedlots, what's the sentiment with that, with them as well? Well, no, no different than, than any cow calf guy you talk to. Not everybody's going to have the same feeling or statement when you ask that kind of question. You know, and I've, I'm a good snapshot of a lot of the industry. Not, not that I know everybody. I, I don't mean it that way when I say it, but you know, we, we sell, my team and I, we sell around 15,000 head a year. We sell to farmer feeders that feed two or three loads in, in an entire season. And we sell to some of the biggest corporate yards that are out there. So, you know, we, we have interaction at different levels with different people spread all over the country, you know, from buyers on the West coast, all the way back to the, the you know, Iowa, Illinois, uh, Minnesota guys and, and, you know, straight through the Southern Plains in the heart of feed country. And it, it's a mixed bag. You know, some, some guys are, some guys are sure feeling that they were in a much better spot than what the early pictures were looking like when, when we weren't able to get cattle in and, and everybody, I, I've never talked to a single feeder that hadn't been affected by having cattle backed up. Not, not a single one. Some were worse than others. Um, you know, I've had some guys that have bought some of these, all calves that we basically, you know, we sold some cattle last week on Thursday that ship what we call immediate delivery. They're going to ship like, you know, within a month, two to four weeks. Um, and then I, we sold cattle on the Thursday sale that won't ship till October, November, that kind of a thing. And those those cattle that were in the short that were coming soon, almost immediate delivery, you know, we had some challenges from buyers that didn't have pin space. They they would like to have had the cattle, but but hadn't been able to get enough of the fat cattle out of there, you know, ready to go, and hadn't been able to clear them pins out. You know, there's there's opportunity and, and loss there too that you kind of have to work through. Um, most of the guys that I'm talking to now, I mean, they're still running a little behind, but they're in a lot better shape than we were, and, and 
I can tell you when we got back to 600 plus head kills a week on the average on the reports from USDA on what we're killing and harvesting, that gave everybody a big shot of fresh air because we at least found like we had stopped digging and now we could start building again. So, Clint, uh, you're, you're on the road a lot. As I mentioned, uh, I see you up here in Montana. <laughs> yeah, see, see you at the cattle conventions, and uh, you, you just rep, uh, represent a lot of uh, uh, producers here across the countryside and across the, the nation. But uh, how, how did you really get your start uh, with, with, uh, with the marketing side of things? Uh, maybe let's talk about uh, where you grew up and, and your passion for the livestock industry. Sure. Um, so I'm like, you know, a lot, everybody's a little different and I, and I've kind of taken a different path, but I'm, I'm a fifth generation rancher, both sides of my family in all reality. Uh, my mama's family's from West Texas and we still have a, a portion of the original family ranch. that was, uh, homesteaded in the 1870s. We still have part of that left in the family. Uh, it, it's, you know, out near south of Midland, Odessa, between there and San Angelo, people, you know, trying to figure out where, where that location is. And then my daddy's family's from, from southern Missouri, and his his great-grandpa moved there after the Civil War, and, and we still, my family still runs some cows on that same exact pesky pastures back back there. So uh, I've, I've had, I've been around cattle all my life. Not, not every generation, not every person stayed involved on a day-to-day activity, Um I grew up wanting to do nothing but be a rancher. And as time went on and, and the pressures of trying to, to take over a place, you know, buy property and have an operating capital and buy cattle. And uh, I've been in and out of the cow business. I've, most of my life has been cow calf, uh, but I've had experience uh, riding pins in, in grow yards and, as, and feed yards. I've worked on the kill plant uh, for a company that, you know, it's Tyson now, but it used to be IVP. I was inspector on the kill plant and got to see what it was like to harvest 45 to 5,000 head every day. Um, I've seen those kind of scenarios. I, I've worked on the seed stock industry, and that's that's probably where I, I really started the journey. Uh, I, I ran a, I started and ran a, a Red Angus seed stock operation in Missouri and then went to work for the Red Angus Association working on their commercial marketing team. And that's where it, you know, it was my job there to work as a pull-through driver for value. So I worked with with some of the packers as far as branded product lines and including our cattle on the grids and stuff like that. Um, worked with a lot of feeders, backgrounders, stockers, order buyers, um, and worked with the cow-calf guys on behalf of the feedstock dues-paying members. And my job was to try to add value for those Red Angus genetics and pull them through the system. Um, that led me into working with Superior. Uh, I started with Superior 2013, but I'd been working with the company in the rep force ever since I went to work at Red Angus. And uh, so I knew a lot of the reps, knew a lot of the customers that were selling with us, knew a lot of the, of the seed stock producers that were selling bulls to that customer base. Um, came to work at, for Superior as a full-time rep in 2013, and now we're going into our eighth year. And and I'm a, I'm a little oddball when you compare me to some of the other superior reps and the business model that they have, because I've been blessed. We're in our 33rd year at Superior, and I've been blessed to work hand-in-hand hand and have some guys kind of take me under their wing that were, were there on year number one. You know, and, and there's a lot of those reps that kind of work a territory. Uh, some of them, some of them, you know, work a big territory. They may work a six, 
relatively small, you know, maybe two or three hundred mile radius and don't get that far from home. But they they built that company when, when people still wondered how we were even going to snow cattle on the satellite or on the video. And, you know, people still had the big dishes out in their backyard. And that's the only way to broadcast over yep. the satellite. And stuff. But uh, my team's a little different. My concept was a little different due to those uh, due to those connections that I've had over the years. of every ranch in some form. Uh, well, uh, Clint, you mentioned, you know, kind of coming up with uh, solution-based uh, approaches to, to helping cattle producers, uh, you know, ha- have a better edge in marketing. And obviously different regions, different types of breeds, and just different types of operations uh, yield different results. But for uh, young producers that are listening to this show, maybe they do market on the video. Maybe they don't. Maybe they have a direct buyer. Maybe they've never uh, thought about retaining some ownership of their calves when they go to the feedlot. Um, what, what are some of the top items that can kind of cover multiple regions of cattle, uh, some suggestions or help that you give with these producers that might be the sixth, fifth, or sixth generation out of college coming in and trying to make their mark on, on the family business. What, what are some of those key things to help improve uh, their herds and help improve that bottom line? Sure. You know, and I would, I would tell you that uh, you need to kind of look at the big picture. You need to keep in mind because uh, I've, I've been through a lot of generational changes, not, not only just with my family, but but I've I've worked with people long enough now because I've I've really kind of been 
marketing cattle for over 20 years. And, and I've seen the generational changes and I've seen people try to come back to the, to the farmer ranch and I've, I've seen what that, how that can be disruptive, but taking a strategy of trying to grow the pie. So you, you take a concept of, of sitting down and, and you've got X amount of revenue generation off of that farm and ranch. And if another family comes back home to be a part of it, you can't just divide up the existing revenue. You may not be able to expand the operation in the traditional sense, but you've got to find a way to generate additional revenue. Sometimes that's through more efficient, you know, cutting costs on production. But at the end of the day, you still got to generate the revenue. And, and what I would say is to stay flexible. Um, you know, there are, we, we are going to do things in the beef industry in the next two generations that we, that we haven't done in the last two. And the last two generations did things that the, the two prior to that would have never dreamed of. You know, I, I run into folks that are, that are, working what I would almost call in the service side of things on the on the production level, whether that be developing heifers, starting calves, um, you know, calving out cows, providing extra grazing service for limited times of the year, uh, you know, all kinds of it. There, there's things that, you know, maybe I can't even think of. Uh, I, I've seen guys do bull development, you know, forage-based bull development, where they can find a way to utilize the resource they have. Maybe they've got the land. Maybe they've been blessed with something being handed down to them and be able to bring cattle on and work that on a, in a service type contract on behalf of other people or, or, or take, a, you know, take a, a, a piece of an asset like, like a ball and calf with, that's not been managed properly and add a lot of value to that calf and some weight by kicking them out on grass, getting them, getting them weaned and, and straightened out and, a strong back protocol put in those calves and marking them back in load lock groups. Um, and, I, and I see that all over the country. Those are, we're not always going to be able just to run cow and calves. And I, I'm not, I'm not telling somebody that shouldn't do that, but I, but I would say that we should always keep our mind open for what else is possible. I, I see guys doing things with hoop buildings and monoslopes and stuff that we never would have thought of in years past. Um, and, and those are all flexible things that they've got to do. And when it comes down to, you asked about adding value to cattle, the number one thing I talk to my sellers about, and this is a concept, it's not a specific, but you can apply it to just about anything. But if you want to sell something for more than anybody else can sell it for, you sell what the buyer wants. If, if I want to buy a new pickup and you don't put the wheels on it, or, or the seats in it, I, I'm not really liable to give you a premium for that truck. That's not very good customer service. And the same thing can happen with cattle. Too many times I hear guys talk about, well, I, I don't get paid for my shots, or I don't get paid to do that, or I, you know, we don't think weaning pays. And, and the thing that I would tell you is not all of those processes are going to be right for every person. But you really need to sit down and, and and work at the desk as much as what we like to work in the pasture at times and figure out where the real profit drivers are, especially in a market that's hard, to, I'm going to say challenged, harder to sell cattle in. You know, in 2013 and 2014, it was easy to sell cattle. And you could sell every animal you had and any you didn't, you could get your hands on because tomorrow they were worth more. And then reality set back in in 2015. We watched the market fall throughout the year. And things got 
allowed and, and in years where we're challenged doing more to your calves, giving the buyer some some added value or some risk management, and I would call herd health both of those. Um, identifying the genetics you're using, adding some value-added programs to give him some flexibility at his resale point. Those kind of things make the difference between a, a calf that sells very well and a calf that sells at average. And sometimes it even comes down to whether or not you can get that calf sold in extreme certain situations. You know, one of the things I consistently hear from my buyer base is that they are just like all of us in ranching country. You go to any coffee shop, you'll hear people talk about a challenge of labor, you know, finding good help, finding people that'll work. They have that problem too. And more and more of our feed yards, more and more of the guys I talk to, they can't handle the amount of all of our volume of balling calves that come in because they're challenged on the labor side. It's hard to keep a cowboy sitting in the saddle, you know, if they've never had experience on a horse or, or working cattle or being able to pick up what those are. And they're willing to pay a lot of money for that because they, they, they can't hire the help. More and more I'm seeing guys with grow yards that are they're starting cattle and specializing on that and then moving those cattle up through the system. There's opportunity out there. It may not be in the package that we all think it is, but but there are anytime you can find where there's a lack for the supply of a the product they're wanting, there's an opportunity for you to to, have, to hit on there. And I I would just tell for a young person trying to find their way, be flexible in the things that are out there, and be willing to to be adaptable. You know, I'm not saying that everything we've always done is bad. My grandpa. You know, taught me a lot, and uh, and he stayed in business, and and I'm not running cows now. Here I am driving up and down the road selling cattle for all my customers and feeding cattle in a feed yard 500 miles from home. But at the same time, we can't always do it just because we've always done it that way. That those are hard decisions each one of us has to make. Well, Clint, not many in the cattle business can actually say that they've worked in pretty much every aspect of the industry from the cow-calf side to the feedlots to the the actual slaughter facilities and 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 now throw in the marketing aspect of it you know i i just think the wealth of knowledge that you bring to your customers and your friends in the countryside is really unmatchable with so many out there and having that view uh, of the industry gives you an opportunity to talk about that as well um, and, and be involved uh, in leadership and advocacy. Um, you're very active within uh, the, the National Cowman's Beef Association and, and certain advisory boards and whatnot. Uh, how do you find time to do that and why do you do that? Well, I, I, I appreciate the, the comment of the wealth of knowledge, I would also tell you it comes from the wealth of, of experience learned the hard way. <laughs> but uh, what, what you said about serving is, and I, I, I really mean this, I, I've been blessed with a chance to work every day in a career that I love. Um, you know, I grew up working hard, just, just, like, just like anybody listening to this show, I'm sure did. And I worked some jobs that I didn't want to work. You know, I, I knew early on that, that I didn't want to milk cows and I didn't want to pour concrete and I didn't want to, and there's nothing wrong with any of that, but I knew that wasn't what I wanted. That wasn't what drove me passion-wise. I didn't want to work within the, 
the walls of a brick and mortar building every day for the rest of my life. Um, so I tried to find ways that I could chase my passion. And I've been blessed because this industry has allowed me to do that. Um, and I feel like I've got to give back because, I, like I said, I, I'm fifth generation on both sides. The cattle industry has been a part of my family's history for 150 years and probably longer than that. I just can't go back that far. But uh, I've always felt like that if, if you could contribute to the betterment of the climate that you're working in and those else around you, that it was owed of you to do that. And I and and it's been a great deal for me because I, I've met some amazing people. I mean, some of the people I do business with on a day-to-day basis, I've met through these kind of uh, conversations and, and sitting in committee meetings. And I've had the chance to learn from guys that are five times smarter and more experienced than I'll ever be. And and, and to hear, to, to sit around and have a cocktail or a cup of coffee and hear somebody, you know, laugh at the mistakes they've made in life, and maybe get a chance to learn not to do that. So, um, you know, it all kind of started for me, even back in college, um, by coincidence, I was actually at the 96 convention when, when the merger discussions were all going on. Now, granted, I was a college kid and I had other things on my mind as that was happening. I won't lie about that, but I was there for a good time. I really business, but, um, I've always tried to stay engaged in it. You know, I, when I, when I moved to Texas in 07, I got involved with Texas and Southwestern cattle raisers and uh, helped them with some of their young leadership programs and was a part of that and, and uh, worked just as part of that organization, you know, trying to give back at that level. And, and I was lucky enough to, in 2013 to be sent to the, the Young Cattlemen's Conference. Um, and then I was elected chair and came back in 14 and represented them. And then I, I moved to Missouri in, in the fall of 2013 and uh, bought a ranch there and was running cows and calf-calf operation and trying to build this business and it, you know, it came to life changes and it, it came to a point that it was time for me to get, go back to Texas and, and concentrate on what we're doing and get closer. I'm, I'm based out of the Fort Worth area. So that, that's where Spears headquartered at. And it was time for me to concentrate more on, on what my real, you know, my real career was and, and be able to focus more on my customers. Um, I did, a, I served a lot with the Missouri Cattlemen's Association and I, I currently serve as the region three, which is for those of you listening would be Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, and Missouri, um, on the policy side. So I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not the checkoff guy. I'm the, I'm the lobby guy and, and I'm the one that, that, that tries to help, uh, relay the messages from, from our region up through the chain and, and represent them on the policy division side of stuff, which is, is the part that I like the most um, because it allows me to engage and interact in, uh, both at the state and at the national level. I've, the, you know, getting to serve has given me a chance to, to go to D.C. four or five times. It's given me a chance to be in in state capitals in Austin and Missouri and, and you know, in Jeff City and, and, and get a chance to really see how that process works and, and understand the, the complexities and sometimes the BS that goes on that we got to work our ways through to make sure that we can build a better industry for the people we're going to give it down to and, and ensure that we can preserve our way of life and our way of business. And, and you mentioned learning more about that policy side of things, uh, get, getting your hands wrapped around it. What, what was one of the biggest learning curves that came to understanding the process that 
NCBA policy goes through from the from the county, state, and then the national level. What were some of those things that you maybe didn't understand and, and, and things are more clear? And how do you relay that on to your fellow cattlemen and women? The, the, the number one was, was how truly grassroots driven it is. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example, a recent example. So we all, we've all been fighting on the fake meat front. Now, now granted, 2020 came along, kind of slapped everything around and changed where our focus was. Uh, you know, COVID really kind of changed the dynamics of every conversation, but 2019 was dominated by fake meat. I mean, that was the major issue that was, that was stirring problems, uh, throughout our industry and, and fears of what was going to happen there. And, NCBA's policy on fake meat started at a county level, worked its way up through a state level, coming up through the state of Missouri, who they enacted through the, the state legislation, and then brought that board out of Region 3 up through the committee structures at NCBA, and it, it got tweaked and worked on by other folks, and other states had, had parts that they wanted to put in it or add to it and, and adapt it, on, but that actually started and worked its way up from from you know literally guys sitting around a table thinking how can we how can we improve this or how can we head off a destructive messaging that that, that was what the that that industry was going to try to place on us was you know unfair practices I would even call it and you got to see that legislation come all the way or that policy come all the way up from a from a county level through all the committees through all the state structure and up through NCBA and get passed and now enacted by our staff, you know, as guidance as to, to what we want to work on to ensure that, that our product is clearly defined and, and, and we can compete without fear of rhetoric and mislabeling from the fake meat products and ensure that the food safety standards that, that our customers have come to expect from beef are applied evenly to those kind of products the ones that are both on the market, which are plant-based, and the ones that may come to the market in the future, which are cell-based. You know, just to make sure that everything is on the up and up and they're not using deceptive practices to fool the consumer. But that is that is part of what was, was probably most exciting to see how that process works. The other side of it is to understand what we've got to do in talking to the administrators and the legislators both at a state and a national level, to make sure that we don't have regulations and laws that are restrictive and destructive and, uh, towards our industry. You know, we don't always get what we want. We, we, sometimes we have to compromise more than what we'd like to to find the best case solution. But being able to work on that level and actually see that work get done and push through and how you gain support, and, and, you know, you get, you get the, that policy achieved. That's to see those farmers and ranchers come forward like that, the producers throughout the country together to work toward that, that that's been an amazing adventure to set and watch. Uh, as we've we've talked about, and, and we all know, 2020, you mentioned it, it threw a wrench into everything. Uh, it caused, it's still causing a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty for uh, cattlemen and women out there. And, uh, uh, I, I've seen you have some great discussions online, whether that be on Facebook, uh, for example, with uh, fellow cattlemen and women out there that are very concerned about uh, the direction of the industry and uh, 
and uh, you just very eloquently interact with uh, producers that maybe don't agree with the uh, policy or, or just uh, ideas out in the countryside. How important is it, though, to be prepared, have the knowledge to talk about all these issues? Because it's a very, it's a very troubling time for folks, and folks are scared about their family businesses that are, you know, already right. tough to get through. What is your advice to anybody out there, whether they're an NCBA member or not? Just just being able to have a conversation with uh, those within the industry to to have us all move forward and, and look towards a bright future within the industry and work on these issues together. Yeah, and, and, and I think I think if we all take a deep breath and, and, and realize what what has happened to our country with the how the effects of COVID has been on our country, because it kind of put a lot of things in perspective. Now, now make no no mistake of what I'm saying, Lane. You're you're right. Every day we are fighting for the livelihood of our business, and we don't always agree as to exactly how we ought to get there. But 99 percent of everyone in agriculture all want the same thing. We, we may not pick the same road to drive down to get to the destination, but we all know what we want. And that is to keep the government out of our business as much as we can to reduce the burdens and regulations that are unnecessary on us and allow us to thrive as an industry and hand down our lifestyle and, and our, our assets, meaning our ranches and our cow herd and our feed yards and everything we've worked for for generations, be able to hand that down and see it prosper and go forward. And the, and the one thing that glues us all together, no matter what segment we're in, to be able to keep feeding the world because we take great pride in doing that while being the best stewards of the land out there. And there's been a lot of self-destructive uh, badgering back and forth over issues that that sometimes, and I realize this can go both ways, but that sometimes are greatly misunderstood. You know, that, that folks do all of the, of the full information on. And sometimes it's just differences of opinions as to how we should attack a problem. You know, we, it's unfortunate that in, because of, because of two main factors, because of COVID and because of the problems we faced that COVID, uh, through the highlight on in the packing plants causing market eruptions like we could have never dreamed of, you know, all of the historic wins that the industry got in 2019 have been glossed over because we've been so eat up with, with, with that focus. That's the, the, the problems we're dealing with right in front of us. But, you know, we, unlike any other time in our lifetime, we have had some huge victories. You know, we've had, rollbacks on regulations and burdensome uh, you know, policies from, from the WOTUS and EPA. And we've had changes to the Endangered Species Act for the first time in my lifetime that we could actually make some common sense restrictions and changing to federal land on the grazing allotments and the permits and how we go about that stuff, all the way to what we talked about before on the fake meat side. I don't, I don't think we understand how big of a victory that was you know, and being able to defend the dietary guidelines for what beef is, all, all the way through those things to trade. I mean, we had the, we had the, I'm 45 years old, and we've never had more trade access to our partners in my entire lifetime. And we've never had as much just in 2020 as what we had in 19. I mean, between the bilateral agreement with Japan, our number one value customer, and the USMCA with 
with Canada and Mexico, ensuring that our our two greatest partners, our, our cousins in this continent, you know, that we had that done, the, the increased quotas that we can send to Europe, the, the beginning of the Chinese trade deal. And I, I know sometimes that's a touchy subject, but we, we have the ability right now to sell our product to more mouths than we've ever had in my entire lifetime. That's amazing. And all of that has been overshadowed by what I would call probably two hot button issues. Number one is market. And number two will revolve around labeling our product to the American consumer on the domestic approach. And, and both of those are major issues and both of them have to be addressed. And, you know, for me, I'm proud to say that I worked on the committee that, that helped work through the labeling issues. And there's been a lot of talk about MCOOL trying to come back around and, and, you know, and talk of voluntary programs and, I'm a market guy. I make my entire living price differentiating cattle and building value, working on the basis of what the calf should be worth to what we can actually capture in, in market form. You know, that, that, that change in that price is, is the value portion that we can put on there. And that's built from a, a load of different things. But my programs are all voluntary. You don't have to vaccinate your calves. You don't have to use better bulls. You don't have to enroll in agent source. You don't have to enroll in export markets. You don't have to market your cattle in a competitive market if you don't want to. You can do a private treaty transaction or whatever way you want to do it. I'm a big believer in the auction format. I mean, I make my living doing it. But those programs have got, you know, we since the initiation after BSE, we've got 17 years of, of proven programs that add money, add value to the producer's pocket. And we can identify the origin of those calves. The MCOOL law we had in place Never at any time did it differentiate in the meat case the value of beef. Now, people will argue that, well, we got more for our cattle, but, but that was supply and demand, not, not the poor barcode that was on the meat package that the American consumer never even realized was there. We're, you know, we do a great job marketing as an industry compared to the government, which does a great job of regulating. That's what they're for. And we can take a value-added program like that, a voluntary program, and actually drive value not only in the meat case by putting a big old American flag on it and using those voluntary programs on the producer level to mandate the origin when you claim it on the label in the grocery store. So when an American consumer walks in there and they buy a, a package with a U.S. label on it and a flying American beef flag, we can trace it plumb back to the ranch of origin. And those programs exist right now. The policy that's been adapted to address that is that the programs are voluntary for a producer to be a part of, but they're mandatory on the products that claim an origin. So if you're going to claim that you're a U.S. product, we have to be able to trace it all the way back to the ranch of origin. So they truly have to be born, raised, and harvested within the U.S. to go into that product line. And it's the producer's choice if he wants to enroll those cattle into there. And the nice thing is, is we have existing programs that have proven to work early two decades for seven you know we started the, the agent source programs in 2004 so going into the 17th year and every year we've seen value driven to those programs and they're already producer driven and they're overseen by usda and the ams or the american marketing service and and we've got nearly two decades of proven price differentiation adding value to, to the product for the producer 
and those programs can be done for as little as a dollar a head right now. That is beneficial because we can finally differentiate product in the meat case, assuming we can get through the policy and into the legislative side to make it the law. So the wonderful thing about those programs is it gives the producer, it's voluntary on their end. They don't have to choose to do it, but they have they have the ability to it. It can be done for as cheap as a dollar a head right now, basically the cost of the year tag. Can source those calves one back to the ranch of origin, a truly U.S. product, born, raised, and harvested that can be traced all the way back to the source. And it and it doesn't interrupt our trade deals. It's got 17 years of, of, of track record proving to, to deliver value back to the producer, and it allows us to deliver truth to the consumer for a product they want. And if they're willing to pay more for it, we'll we'll push more cattle into that program because those cattle will differentiate in the marketplace and be and, and be able to fill that product line that's demanding more in the meat case. It's, it's a win-win all the way around. You know, and you know the other hot topic right now is just marketing and it's number one on everyone's mind and, and I live and breathe it every day. I, I understand. You know, I hear it from my buyers, I hear it from my sellers. Everybody in the industry, I don't think anybody would disagree that we've got a problem with the amount of negotiated cash trade to set the basis for, for how the majority of capital are sold, which are on a formula. The nice thing about those kind of transactions, what they call AMAs, uh, cattle to be differentiated based on what they are. Now, that concept plays out the same way as it does in a feeder cattle, but start talking about doing things at the ranch level to add value to your calves. So when you've got a better vaccination program and you add added value programs for the carcass, you know, meaning like export eligibility or a natural program or something like that, you're not going to capture the direct value of that. The man you're selling it to is when he harvests those cattle, but he can, because he has an upside potential there and you're taking on part of that risk, he can pay you more for that product. And, and I foresee that the same way that, that when you're selling fat cattle through a formula deal, you know, you've got X amount for the live weight, but you're agreeing to step into a scenario that after those cattle are harvested, the pluses or minuses from premiums or discounts, depending on how the cattle actually hang, can give you more money in your pocket or, to be fair, we'll take some out of it. And to, to establish that basis or that, that, that number that those formula cattle are traded on, we depend entirely on the negotiated cash trade and different parts of the country have different amounts. We all understand that concept. So we, we've got, um, even within NCBA, we've got some affiliates that are, that are pushing for a mandated percentage of, of cash trade. And, and there's, I understand there, there's some, there's some sense in under, in making, you know, an, an X amount be traded in that format for price discovery for the majority. But you've also got to be cautious every time we, Put a government mandate in place that hasn't exactly ended up well for us. Uh, there's a lot of questions about that. You know, there's a the working task force right now within NCBA is trying to bring forth through that to the to the membership base some solutions for that. Things including a, a bit on grid kind of concept where one of the issues that we have is in certain parts of the country our our feeders don't have the ability to sell on a grid. The packers don't offer them that, um, you know, for various reasons. Whatever it may be, they may not have access to those kind of a, a formula-based deal. If, if we could establish a, a standardized grid that would be available in all kill plants, and, and I'm not saying you'd have to throw out any existing formulas 
have access to one, you know, once you establish the plus and minuses based on the region and the plant, then the negotiated cash on, on those cattle for what their basis is would, would be part of price discovery. A great way to try to find a way for that. There's there's a lot of ideas out there, and and I don't know that I know what the exact answer is. I, I mean, I, I've got a lot of friends and a lot of people I respect that are 100% opposed, and I've got some that are 100% in favor of mandates. Uh, the truth is, is we all know that we need more price discovery, and, and, and I'm not... Me and my gut, it, it concerns me when we start talking about mandating how a private business has to buy or sell their their product, regardless of what that business is. That that's where I start to have a problem because how do I if we apply this to the rancher level, how do I tell a, a rancher that he has to sell X amount of his cattle through me on my video? No other choice. Doesn't have the right to do it any other way. Or he has to do it private treaty to a local guy or through his local cell barn. Or he has to retain ownership on X amount, period. No questions asked. I mean, that's that's the same concept when we apply it back downstream that we have to be cognizant of. Now, do we need to find ways to force more competitive bidding? Yes, we do. The other thing that I would say, big picture-wise, you're, you're talking to a guy that makes his entire living and, and, and you know, captures value for my customers entire years worth of effort by using the auctioneering system and, and forcing competitive bids on cattle. If we mandate under the system we're in right now, a, a lot of those cattle that are we're talking about being cash trade, negotiated trade, it's really a private treaty transaction. It's hard to capture full value of competitive bidding in a private treaty transaction format. You know, I, I think if, if we're really going to try to implement something that would force price discovery, we've got to be thinking as an industry, how are we going to capture that? How are we going to leverage if if a, if a packer's got to buy X number of cattle, how are we going to leverage actually forcing that competition, especially in parts of the country that may only have one or two packer buyers, how are we going to force that to, to, if, if we want to drive the price up on the value of cattle, how are we going to capture that? How are we going to collect that? And those, I mean, those are all things we've got to work through. The other truth is certain parts of the country don't require the same percentage to have true price discovery because different parts of the country feed different volumes of cattle. So 50% in this state is X amount of cattle, but 50% in that state might be five times the amount of that, of that cattle, of that number of cattle for price discovery. It's, it's one of them deals that not everything is, is can be completely standardized in the process, but but it's something that we've all got to tackle. But you know, there's the, the biggest problem I've seen, and you started this question with that is sometimes how we respond with each other when 99% of everyone in agriculture all want the same thing. We we may not pick the same road to drive down to get to the destination. That's something we've got to find a way to pull together. At the end of the day, there's only two percent of the entire U.S. population in agriculture, and there's a lot less than that in the beef industry. We can't afford to fight with each other when we have the same long-term goals in mind. Clint, uh, I, I I really liked your uh, your mention of looking at the big picture 
And as I uh, wrap up today's podcast, as we look at the big picture, what are some last thoughts that you have uh, advice for the, the cattlemen and women tuning in to today's podcast, whether that's just becoming more active within your county, state associations, or uh, just trying to be a better voice for your industry? What are some tips you have for them? I would, I would definitely echo that. If you're passionate about it, get involved. If, if you don't understand how things work, get involved. If, if you want to make a difference, if you think that um, you've got ideas, get involved. Because it all works from the grassroots side of it. If, if you don't like the way the checkoff dollars are being invest, or invested, or if you don't like the, the idea of, of you want to know more how that's happening, get involved on your state or the, you know, the Cattlemen's Beef Board and be a part of that discussion. You know, Learn how those funds are being invested on our behalf to drive demand, research, to, to fight the, the issues out there that the media throws at us or that cow parts were going to end the world. You know, that's all part of the ability for checkoff to help defend that part of it. Get involved on the policy side. You know, too many times I, I see folks standing, standing in the stands chunking rocks at the people that are in the arena trying to get stuff done. And, and they... They'll have good ideas and they want to get involved, but they won't get off the fence and come help. And that's what I would say. Get involved at any level. Get involved on your state. That, that's how I got started. You know, get involved in your state. Put your energy towards that. And let's all pull the wagon the same way because we all want to get to the same end point. Uh, put your time and your resources and your passion to work because we've all been gifted to have those. They're different. We're all different in what we can do with them. But every one of us has been gifted that way. Every one of us brings an experience to the table that somebody else doesn't quite have. And, and we need all of us to be able to, to do this long term to keep us in the, in the cattle industry and to keep delivering beef to the consumer and keeping it the number one protein in the world. Again, Clint Berry, thank you so much for joining us here today as uh, you travel down the road from go, going from one operation to another, and uh, you're heading back to Fort Worth, is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah, we've got an auction tomorrow. Well, Clint, I just want to thank you again for uh, uh, taking time for us just to talk a little bit about yourself and uh, and your views on the on the cattle business here in 2020. Again, our friend Clint Berry, thank you so much for joining us here today and, and safe travels as you continue to uh, roll down the road representing uh, the, the cattlemen and women out across the countryside on, on multiple platforms. So, a uh, friend, thanks for joining us here today and uh, hope to see you down the road. Yes, sir. Thanks, Lane. Friends, listening today to the podcast, thanks for joining us. Make sure and subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts of The Cattleman's Call if you have not done so yet. That will do it for today's show. I'm Lane Nordlund. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.